Genesis chapter 18. Last week, uh, we began this chapter, chapter 18, and we made it all the way through verse 15. And in those first 15 verses, we read how the Lord had come to Abraham with a couple of his angels. And in doing so, uh, Abraham invited the Lord to stay for a little while, to be refreshed. And we went through that whole interaction where Abraham served the Lord, and, and the Lord had come to Abraham, if you guys remember, because he wanted to communicate some things to him. He had some important things to to communicate to Abraham, first regarding the birth of Isaac. Uh, And um, he wanted to do this before going on to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we read through the rest of, as we read through the rest of this chapter, we, we will start back up in verse 16, where God is letting Abraham know the second thing that that he had come to tell him, uh, where God let Abraham know that he was on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah in order to judge and ultimately destroy these cities and those who dwelt in them. And as a result of this, we get to be um, an outsider that's looking into an interesting conversation. And we get to see this, as we see this, conversation develop and as we look into it and 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 um, further on maybe next week into the events that follow uh, we're going to see many things that we should that we need to apply to our own lives and and um, as I began to study this chapter I was really having some challenging things and and there's some challenging things in here but the more I went through it and the more I studied it I began to see how really, truly relevant this chapter and the things that Abraham and God were talking about and the principles behind them really apply to us as individuals and as Americans or as those who are, are, are um, a part of this country who are about ready to elect a president and wondering what our future holds for us with these two candidates that we have as, as a choice. Who's going who's gonna to lead our country? And, and um, I, 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 I don't want to go too much into that, but uh, as we go through this, you'll be able to draw some of the things that I'm talking about and see some correlations um, to how God deals with things. And um, as, I, as you we get to the end of this, what I want you to see, we need to see is, is, is um doesn't matter, I mean, it does matter, but in, in the whole scheme of God's plan of things, whether it's, it's Hillary Clinton or, or um, Donald Trump, um, God's still on the throne, and uh, God still has a plan, God still has a purpose, and God still does good through all of these things in our lives, through our lives. And, and guys, when we begin to look at the things that Abraham and God are discussing and talking about, and the, and, and the mention of, of God saving Sodom and Gomorrah uh, uh, for the sake of, of the righteous, we have to remember that in our country right now, it, it may be a small percentage that we are part of, but in our country right now, there are still the righteous around. There are those who are found righteous and have been declared righteous because of Jesus Christ and our faith in Him. And, and, and as God said to Abraham as they're going through this, this discussion, this conversation, was saying to Abraham, even for the sake of ten, Abraham, even for the sake of ten, I would not destroy 
the cities of God at Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, God's judgment would not rain down. And I believe that to be an indication of where we're at uh, in regards to maybe there's God's coming judgment upon our nation. And, and, and certainly uh, it's ripe. Our nation's ripe for God's judgment. And we don't know exactly what that's going to play out like in regards to this next presidential uh, election. But as long as we're here, the righteous, God's not going to pour out his wrath on us. The Bible tells us that we have not been appointed to wrath, that every bit of wrath that you and I deserve because of our sin, because of our evil and wicked ways, was put upon Jesus Christ on the cross. He took it. He wore it. He owned it. He paid the debt for it. And in exchange, he put his righteousness on us. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not going to judge our nation. I'm just saying that before he does so, like what we see here, is he'll pull the righteous out. And it's a reminder for us that there's a day coming, a day when we're listening and looking, listening for the sound of the trumpet and looking for our Lord to appear in the clouds and the skies where we together who believe in him will be caught up together. And then the wrath of God will be poured out upon this country, upon this world, and, and um, we're not looking for judgment, we're looking for redemption. We're looking for the day of our own redemption, but also we're looking for others to enter into that safe place of redemption as we wait for the Lord's return. And, and, and that's where we see ourselves relating to Abraham and his example as he kind of goes to bat, if you will, for those who are in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and even for the lost world, those who were lost there, um, um, and, and it's a reminder for us as we prepare to go through this and read this that, that there's those who we need to go to bat for, those who we plead before the Lord. So with that, if you guys will join with me in verse 16 of chapter 18, it says, Then the men rose from there, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely be a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him, and the Lord said, behold, or excuse me, in verse 20, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy that place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare all the place for their sakes. 
Then verse 27, Abraham answered, and indeed now I, he said, I am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five? And so he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he said to him yet again and said, or and he spoke to him and said yet again, suppose there were 40 found there. And so he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 30. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and, and, and I will speak, but once more. Suppose 10. Suppose 10 should be found there, and he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And so the Lord went on his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that we have your word, which is truth, and the Holy Spirit that you've placed inside of us, God, to teach us and to discern to our hearts and to our minds what is truth and what is not. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand these things that you and Abraham were talking about all those years ago. Because truly, God, they, they relate and are relevant to our own lives, to our own circumstances, God, to so many people who yet do not know you that are working out who you are and what you are like and what you want to do for their lives. Lord, we know who you are. We've come to find out what you're like through your goodness and your kindness and your love that's been poured out to us. But Father, we know that even for all eternity, we're not going to be able to understand and know you fully. So we pray, God, that you would reveal more of yourself to us this morning. God, that we would take the, the knowledge that we would receive and that we would apply it to our lives. Father, that we would truly experience you, perhaps in a new and fresh way this morning. God, we love you, and we thank you for your forgiveness. We're thankful, God, we're thankful that... Um, You've given us the gift of eternal life, that you've uh, bestowed your righteousness upon us, and that we know, God, that it's nothing because of who we've done or, or what we've done or because of who we are, but because of who you are and because of your grace and because of your mercy. Father, let us see this morning how the fact that you're a just God, a merciful God, and a grace God, Father, let us, gracious God, let us see how all these things about who you are, work together in perfect harmony. Lord, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you look back to, to these first few verses, and I want to point out in verse 17 that the Lord really is presents, he starts by presenting this question, and, and, and it, obviously it's rhetorical, and I, uh, there's some debate in whether that it's just kind of a thought of the Lord, or if he's, he's actually speaking this out in the presence of Abraham, and, and I think it's spoken out. I don't think it makes a difference, but I think, I think God's kind of um, bringing Abraham into this, this place 
so he can speak to him and he's preparing him to receive the things that he wants to make known to him. And so he, he, he kind of prefaces this by, by speaking and, and, and saying this question, shall I hide from Abraham? Shall I, shall I hide from you what I'm doing? And it's obvious that God was referring to this plan to travel to Sodom and Gomorrah in order to judge and destroy them. And matter of fact, when you get to chapter 19, maybe some of you have read ahead or are even reading ahead now, you're going to see that this is to be true. This is what God is referring to in regards to what he's doing. However, as I mentioned last week in regards to the reason for why God would make it a point to choose Abraham and to reveal his plan and will to Abraham, um, as I pointed that out, we need to see that this rhetorical question is really directing our attention back to the fact that God was continuing to make himself known to Abraham in a new way. More of who God was was being revealed to Abraham. And when we look to these verses that follow, verses 18 and 19 here in the text, there are two specific reasons that are given to us by God for why he wanted Abraham to know what he was about to do. Why? And these two explanations reveal God's, uh, or reveal why God desired to make himself known to Abraham in a bigger way. Not just in the intimate and personal way, which is in the friend way that we've been talking about, but there's a, there's a bigger thing being revealed to us that's going on in regards to why God wanted him, he, why God wanted to make himself known to Abraham. And, and as we see this, it also gives us two reasons or two explanations for why God has chosen to make himself known to us. Why me? Why, Lord? Why have you made yourself known to me? Why, why do you make your plans known to me? Why do you make your will known to me? Why do you make your person of who you are known to me? So as we keep this in mind and then look to verse 18, we see that God first brings up the fact that Abraham had been chosen by God to bring forth a mighty nation. We know that when God called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans, he made these promises. He, he established this covenant with him, a, a, a promise of an heir, a promise of a land, a promise of descendants, and, and of a mighty nation that would come up from him. And this is what God's referring to, and we know that that mighty nation would be the nation of Israel, the nation by which God would bless all the other nations of the earth down through time. And for this reason, for this reason, God said, he would reveal his plan. He would reveal his will, and most importantly, he would reveal himself, his person, to Abraham. In light of this, we see that God's desire was, always has been, and still is, God's desire is for all men to know him. God desires to make himself known to us. So that we might know that he is a just and merciful God. So this knowledge of God that Abraham received from the time that he spent with Abraham over all of these years, from the experiences that God had with Abraham, God says, I'm making these things known, I'm revealing myself, I'm spending time with you so that these things might be passed on, right, and built upon by your descendants, Abraham. It's not just for you alone. And that's a reminder for us. 
the, the, the testimonies that we have, the, the, the relationship that we have, the experiences that we have, the knowledge that we have of God and what He has done for us and what He is like, that revelation and that ongoing revelation is just not for us. God gives us these things so that we might hand them down to others, that we might share them with others, that we might testify of Him to others. And so as this was a reason for why God was explaining these things, even specifically in light of what he was doing with Sodom and Gomorrah, which revealed the fact that he was a just God, which revealed the fact that he was a merciful God, this is what Abraham, God wished for Abraham to know, to pass down in addition to all these other things. And it would be built upon by his descendants and then by their descendants that followed to the whole nation of Israel. And from that nation, as God revealed himself and he was their God and they were his people, all the world would be blessed because a knowledge of God would be made known. Even greater, we know that it has implications into the salvation of the world through Jesus Christ. Likewise, we being these other nations, spoken of kind of indirectly, these other nations of the earth who are now being blessed through Israel's knowledge and experience of God, we are being blessed as God first made himself known to us through the Hebrew people. So it's like that song we sang this morning, you know, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel being made known. But it's important to point out that the knowledge of God, guys, the, a knowledge or the knowledge of God is different than knowing God like Abraham did. In the New Testament, it talks about people who, who, who always are learning but never come to a knowledge of God. You see, there's, 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 you, you can know about something and not know about it, right? You, you, you can, we can read about people in a book, historical figures, or even people who are alive today, and still never know them. We can know about them, but not know them. And, 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 and I point that out because this knowledge of God, we have to understand, it's different than knowing God like Abraham did. And the type of relationship that, that Abraham had with God, where he was called the friend of God, that kind of relationship where you know God only comes, it's only born through faith. It can only grow through faith. And this is why Scripture tells us that because Abraham, if you remember from a few chapters ago, as we look at this faith and this connection to the relationship we have with God, it, Scripture tells us that why? Because Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness, and therefore he was called the friend of God. Furthermore, in regards to our own relationship with God, how does this relate to our lives? What does this mean to us? So in regards to our own relationship with God, we can look to Galatians chapter 3, verses 6-9. through 9, That kind of accounts and details this in relationship to us as it says this. It says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, meaning the descendants of Abraham. So you can become a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, a co-heir with Jesus Christ through this adoption process by faith. And it says in the scriptures in verse 8, foreseeing that God would 
justify the Gentiles, and Paul puts it in parentheses because he's attaching it to this and drawing our attention back to it. He says, by the way, all the other nations of the earth, so in the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, all the other nations of the earth, by faith, preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. So then, he says, those who are our faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You see, in light of this, we understand the most important thing. We understand that when Jesus, we understand, excuse me, why Jesus, in light of this, when he came to redeem mankind from our evil and sinful and wicked ways, he said in John 15, verse 15, about those of us who would choose to put our faith in him, to enter into that relationship with him, he said, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. And God wants us to know what he is doing as his sons, as his friends, by faith. And this is why Jesus said, but now I call you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The point is, is that through our faith in Jesus, and ultimately because of his death and resurrection, which brings forgiveness, we can know God personally. We can know his plans and his will for our lives. And I, I tell you what, guys, when there is impending judgment on the scene, like what we read about here in this chapter, like what we see going on before us, that's, that's evident by so many things with what's going on in Russia, what's going on in Syria, what's going on in our own country with the elections. When we see all these impending judgments, it's good to know what God knows about all of this. Does it, is it not? Because there's no hope, there's no comfort in just the things that we see going on. Who here is really hopeful in, in, in either of our presidential choices that you're just like, yes! I mean, there's obviously a better choice than the other. I'm not saying that there's not. But I mean, it's, it's, but when you know that Jesus is coming back for us, that God is for us, that there's nothing that can separate us from his love, that all of our sins are forgiven and we have a living hope that we too one day when this world, however it ends, whatever happens is that God's not only going to take us away, but in the meantime, he's going to be here with us and he's for us and he's watching over us. That's where I find my hope. That's where I find my encouragement. And I'm so grateful that we have a God that only not only makes himself known to us, but lets us know the future, his plan and his will for our lives. We're not going around, walking around in the dark going, I don't know. I don't know. I sure hope this. I sure hope that. We don't have to be like the rest of the world. It's an awesome thing. But let me tell you something. What we see here as we read on is we see that there's a responsibility that comes with this knowledge, with this knowing. There's a responsibility. That's what God's speaking to. Uh, should I let Abraham know? Well, sure, I'm going to let him know. Why? Because he's going to be the father of a great nation. And he needs to tell his kids, and his kids' kids needs to tell their kids. They need to tell him of who I am, what my plan is, and what the will is. What I'm like. And there's a responsibility that comes with this knowledge, with this understanding. It's the same responsibility that Abraham had. And it's the second reason for why God 
or the second reason why God gave, or, or the second reason God gave for why he revealed himself and his will to Abraham, then saying, then look in verse 19, for I have known him. In order, I have known him, why? In order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now, one of the, I, this is not on my notes, but I just got to say it. One of the most dumbest things I've ever heard Christians say is, I'm not going to teach my kids about God. I'm just going to let them figure it out on their own. Have you ever heard somebody say that, you know? They need to make their own decisions, their own mind up for themselves, and so I'm going to let them explore and just let them figure it out on their own. That's blasphemy. That's re- that's. I almost said something I shouldn't have said. But God says here specifically that I'm going to tell you these things, and you better command your kids. You better teach them. You better show them the path of righteousness, what is true, what is good, what is noble, what is praiseworthy, all those things. Teach them, tell them. And it's one of the reasons for why. There's a responsibility that we have. Now, we know the word spoken by God here at the beginning, or excuse me, now this word spoken at the beginning of this verse, known, that, that God says, where he says, I've known Abraham, it's the Hebrew word yada. And, and, it, and it means to know through an experience. So I've used this word before. I've given examples of it. You know, my, my, my go-to one is, is you can try to tell somebody what chocolate ice cream tastes like who's never had it, but you're never going to do it justice, right? You have to go, okay, let me stop trying to tell you. Here, take a bite. And, and when they do that, they, they experience it. They have a different understanding, a different knowledge than they had before. That's what God's speaking here in regards to Abraham. I've known him. And, and really, the, 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 the verb tense there, which is not really best translated here in the, in the New Testament, it's, 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 it's the implication here with the verb tense of the Hebrew word yada as it's written here, it, it's really God's saying that I've, I've known him, but I've revealed myself to him. Abraham has experienced me. I've known him. And, and in light of this, we see that God was also revealing himself to Abraham in an experiential way so that Abraham would tell his others about whom he himself had come to know and then command them to keep the righteous ways of God, the just ways of God. And when the nation of Israel, we know that when it was finally born, when God brought them out of Egypt into the hand of Moses, you know, and setting his captives free, when, when that took place, when the nation of Israel was, was, was finally born, we see that God, in making himself known to them, called the nation of Israel to the same responsibility that he called Abraham to through the giving of the law at, the Mount, of, of, of the, at Mount Sinai. And in that, he commanded this people, this nation, these descendants of Abraham, saying, you need to be separate. Holy and devoted unto me. So you need to live differently, he said, in order, again, referring this to be an example to all the other nations around you. Not only in the way that you, that you do things, but in the way that you eat, in the way that you dress. All these things that were compiled in the law that they gave him, it all had to do with the secondary influence that they would be to the rest of the world around them. Going, why are you different? Why are you different? And likewise, the same holds true in us. Do people look at our lives and see that we've been called and commanded to something different and go, why are you different? 
or are we like everybody else? And we have no reason and no opportunity to tell them about God because there's no difference in our lives about who we know or because of who we know. So for those of us who come to God through faith in Jesus, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to be different. We have a responsibility to live different. We have a responsibility to speak differently in regards to telling our children and those around us about a loving God whom we've come to know about his pl- and also about his plan and his will for their lives. Do you not know what God's plan and will is for your co-workers' lives? Absolutely you do. For your children, absolutely you do. For an unbelieving family member, absolutely you do. Because what matters is not things of this life, what matters is the things of the life to come. The Bible tells us that. And God's will and God's plan for their lives is to repent and be saved from the judgment that's coming. And they may not know that. But yet God has us and holds us responsible for and to those things. However, this responsibility that comes with the knowledge, it goes beyond the words we speak. It does. I want to reiterate this again. It goes beyond the words we speak into the way that we live as we see Abraham's conversation with God as an example of this, and in, in this example, we see we have, an, we, have an, we have a responsibility also to intercede. We have a responsibility to intercede as we minister to a lost world. I love what Charles Spurgeon read or wrote. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. Charles Spurgeon writing about our responsibility to minister, to intercede for the lost. Lots of times for people that want nothing to do with us, right? He said this, if they will not hear you speak, they cannot prevent you from praying. Do they jest at your exhortations? In other words, hey, stop doing that, or you need to do this, you know, these being a witness, being a light. Do they jest at your exhortations to them? He said, they cannot disturb you at your prayers. Are they far away so that you cannot reach them? Your prayers can reach them. Have you declared or have they declared that they will never listen to you again or even see your face? Never mind. God has a voice which they must hear. Speak to him and he will make them feel. Though they now treat you despitefully, rendering rendering evil for your good, follow them with your prayers Never let them perish for your lack of supplications. I love that. And so in verse 20, we read on and it says to us, And the Lord said, Because of the outcry, because of the, of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and they tore toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then we go on. So here in verse 20, God shares with Abraham his plan. And in doing so, he said, he's heard these cries against the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of this, he says he's going to verify. I'm going to verify and I'm going to take action. And, and, and of course, doctrinally or theologically speaking, it's important to point out, yeah, it's not as if God didn't know, okay? God knew. God knows everything. 
And so why was he saying this? Why does God say this to Abraham? And, and, and God knows everything, and so if God knows everything, we know that he really did not have to physically go to Sodom and Gomorrah to, to see and know if it, what had come up to him was really true. God, it tells us that God can look down from heaven, and he sees all things. He sees even into the hearts of men. So he didn't, know to, he didn't need to go and see the wickedness firsthand. Yet as the Lord, in verse 22, then sends these angels on to Sodom, and the Lord remains behind, we see that in this, that God's continuing to reveal himself to Abraham. That's really what's going on. God's revealing himself more and more to Abraham, specifically in this instance, his person and his nature. By first showing him that he's a good God, that he's a just God that does not judge unjustly. You know, how many people have made judgments into things that they just don't know anything about, right? They've heard something. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, that's what I always thought. You know, a Christ come up to them and they jump on the bandwagon and God's going, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. And so he's revealing this to Abraham. And the other thing that or we've seen here is, is that um, by sending these two angels um, God was revealing to Abraham by sending these two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah before destroying it. God was showing and demonstrating that not only is he a just God who verifies, he's a merciful God who delivers. And we'll talk more about that next week. And this will further be revealed when we get to chapter 19. When we see and read that the, the angels had more than one job, but the very first job they had was to make a way of escape for those righteous persons who were living in and behind the city walls of these evil cities. In other words, God, because of who he is, would never slay the righteous with the wicked. Ever. But apparently this was something that Abraham at the very least was unsure of. And, and, in, and in his initial response in verse 23, by asking God if he would destroy the righteous with the wicked, really reveals this. And we know that Abraham was obviously concerned for Lot, right? Who's living within the city of Sodom and Gomorrah that God's going to be destroying here? His nephew. But as we read on, we see that Abraham's intercession was, was for more than just Lot. And as we read on and we see Abraham interceding, we have to conclude that this knowledge of the coming judgment, as a result of it, he was also concerned for others who were living there as well. In light of this, I want to first point out some things for us to see about Abraham and about his example that can help us as we come before God in this call or command to be intercessors for those who we know, for those who we love, and perhaps for those who are still living in the danger zone of God's coming judgment. To begin with, if we want to intercede for others, guys, we like Abraham must know the Lord personally. you got to know him. You have to have a personal, ongoing, intimate relationship with the Lord and be obedient to his will if you're going to intercede for others. Why? Because this allows for us to know what to pray, but also it allows for us to know how to pray. What to pray and how to pray comes from a knowledge of God and a knowledge of His will. Remember, in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it says this. It says, you do not have because you do not ask, yet when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on what, uh, spend what you get on your own pleasures. 
And because Abraham was in a right relationship with the Lord, he ended up knowing more about the future of the citizens who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah than they did themselves. He knew more about their own future than they did. Does that sound familiar to the times we're living in? Maybe perhaps some of the people that we know, they're just oblivious. They've believed a lie, they're deceived, maybe it's even self-deception, but they don't know, but yet we know. There's a cliff coming. There's danger. There's judgment. We know. And the fact of the matter is, is we also have had many things revealed to us about the future of this world and about the coming of God's judgment, and not just about those things, but we even know about the things that are leading up to it. God says, look for this, look for this. You shall know the times and you shall know the seasons. Why does he tell us that? So that we can be hopeful and expectant when it gets dark, but so that we also can go, we better get busy. Look, this is what God said, telling others about what it's going to be like before he comes. And when he comes, this is what it's going to do. Can you not see these things going on in the world around us? The Bible prophesied about them. The Bible foretold them. You guys, we got to know the Lord personally. We need to know his will. You need to know this book because it reveals those things to us. And we cannot accurately and effectively intercede in the lives of people around us and go before God and go to them without these things being made known. Now that we have an obligation to speak the truth about these things, we should be coming before God and asking for Him to soften their hearts. Prepare them, God, for the words that you'll send me to speak in order that they might turn and be saved. That's the goal. That's the purpose. But the other thing we need to see is from Abraham's intercession is, I'm not going to read on, I already read it, but as the other thing we need to see from Abraham's intercession, that is request to God to spare the city for first the sake of 50, then 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, and then finally just for the sake of 10. Guys, understand that this was not a request for mercy. This intercession, this conversation was not based upon the mercy of God, but on the justice of God. Do you notice that? It's important. In other words, Abraham was pleading for the justice of God, and this is evident by verse 25 where Abraham asks a second question and says this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The point is, a just and holy God would never destroy the righteous with the wicked. Would he? A just judge in our own court systems today, if he was truly just, he would not condemn an innocent man to prison or to pay a penalty that he did not owe. But apart from Lot, who is declared a righteous man in 2 Peter 2, verses 6 through 9, whose compromise, it tells us, led to the torment, the daily torment of of his soul, apart from Lot, all of those who lived in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were exceedingly wicked. We're told that in Genesis chapter 13, verse 13. And we have other examples of that in chapter 19. And now we know this, this brings up this next issue, guys. In that we know what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. I mean, they're, they're, this wasn't the only sin, but this is what's typified or, or classified or attached to Sodom and Gomorrah. In that their sin was rooted in sexual immorality, specifically the sin of homosexuality. But listen, 
we as Christians can get on the wrong, we can get on a certain thing and we can, co- we can totally miss the most important thing. And I don't want us to do that this morning. And hopefully your perspective will be changed here as we look at the totality of God's word in contact. Because remember, as we think about that, we have to remember that because no sin is greater than any other sin in the eyes of God, we need to understand that the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed for their sexual immorality. The citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah were not judged and destroyed for their sin of sexual immorality, for homosexuality. In other words, God's judgment, God's judgment, as we look at the totality of Scripture in context, we'll see that God's judgment came on them for specifically three reasons that God says. And in verse 20, we're told first that it was for the great outcry of those who were suffering from their evil ways. Meaning they, were, they, they in their sin were causing great harm to others. There was abuse to others. And God says that's the number one reason. But this was not the only reason. And when we look to other places in the Bible, we see that God's just judgment came upon them because they were hardened to their sin and they would not turn from that. Turn from it. Is that not the case with all people in regards to whatever sin it is? It's a hardness of heart and an unwillingness to turn. And God says through the prophets multiple times, this was the reason why. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9, they are mentioned as a people who did not even care to hide their sin. That sounds a little bit like the time we're living in, by the way. Meaning they, they no longer felt any shame when they even boasted in it. There's a proverb that says, basically there will come a time when men will begin to wear their sin on their chest. Openly, proudly, Ooh, look at me. With no disgrace, no shame. That was what was going on here and one of the reasons why God had said I'm going to judge them because they'd gotten to that place of hardness then in Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 14 God speaks of them and refers to them and points out that they were a people who would not repent saying they would not turn from their wicked ways and as a matter of fact in that instance God uses the nation of Sodom and Gomorrah and that state and that condition of unrepentance and he applies it to the nation of Israel who were serving false gods and God judged them And for these reasons, God, who is long-surfing, long-surfing, he's a surfer, who's got, who he, <laughs> because of God who's long-suffering and merciful, he took action. And when he took action, it tells us that sudden destruction came upon them. And I point all these things out because their demise is, is referred to many times in Scripture as an example of God's righteous judgment. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, Lamentations 4, verse 6, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9, and in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, and in Luke chapter 17, verses 28 through 32, Jesus used Sodom and Gomorrah as an example to warn those of us who would be living in these last days about the coming of God's judgment so applicable, ties so directly into the times we're living in. So in light of this, we might wonder why Abraham, when we have all this knowledge about where these people were at and what they were doing and the place that they had deteriorated to, we might be wondering why Abraham would be advocating for them. If he's a friend of God and knows the will of God and the heart of God and and all these things and experience God, why is he advocating for them and asking God to spare such a wicked, evil people who deserve to be judged? 
deserve for fire and brimstone literally to be rained down upon them. Why is he advocating them? After all, wouldn't it be better if they were just wiped off the face of the earth, even if a few righteous people who were in the place they were clearly should not have been might have been caught up in God's crosshairs when judgment came? Furthermore, Abraham knew firsthand of their unrepentant ways, considering they, along with his nephew Lot, went right back to their old sinful ways of life, failing to heed the warnings of God long after, or not, I mean, not long after, but short after Abraham had risked everything to go and rescue them from the army's Ketelamor that we read about a few chapters ago. So even though Abraham's request to spare this city were, were appeals to the justice of God. Guys, understand that Abraham wasn't advocating for judgment. He wasn't advocating for judgment, even though he was appealing to the justice of God and God doing good. And clearly, Abraham did not want to see his nephew or any other person in the city die and be lost forever. So the issue at hand is not what kinds of sin people commit. The issue at hand is best defined by Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which tells us that the wages of sin is death, and beyond death is an eternal hell. That's the issue at hand. Then and now. And if we're going to be a, a, a people or a person who is like Abraham, we got to have the same compassionate heart and a deep concern for the salvation of the lost, no matter what their sins may be no matter what their sins may be. Even homosexuality, adultery, murder, stealing, thieving, any of them, all of them. And if Abraham's example is not enough to motivate our hearts and to compassion and to concern for those who are given over to sin, you know what, then we got to remember verses like Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, which tells us that God's judgment, guys, is a strange work. Meaning it's, it's so rare that we go, wow, God pours out judgment. It's a strange work, the Bible says. And in 2 Peter, or, or how about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, which says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Is that your heart? Is that our heart that comes from experiential knowledge of, of who God is? Going, listen, God doesn't want you to perish. Or about Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. As we begin to wrap this up, I want to point out, I want to look back. This is, this is where it becomes very real for me and should become very real for, for all of us. I want to wrap it up because I want to look back, in doing so, look back to the question there in verse 25 that Abraham poses, that he asks God. Because, guys, this question that Abraham asks here, I think it's a question that's been asked by all of us, but more importantly, it's the same question that many people are asking today. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And when we get to chapter 19, we'll see that God reveals himself to be this judge of the earth who always does the right thing by saving Lot and his family before raining down the fire and brimstone which destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the entire Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, when read and studied in context, clearly testifies to the fact that God always does the good and right thing. Always. And there are many men and women mentioned in the Bible to whom God has proven this over and over again. Men like King David who declared in Psalm 
chapter 19, or Psalm 19, verses 9 through 10. He said, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. And remember, David had been on both sides of the coin, where God's judgment was poured out upon those who had done harm to him, and God's judgment and righteousness was poured out upon him when he had done wrong. And David declares, the, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He says, man, they are more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than all the honey and the honeycomb. Justin, if you want to come up with the rest of the guys, we're going we're gonna to tie it together here and close it out. Guys, I, I point this out, but however, there, I point this out because many people today, there are many people today, and you guys know them, you run, you run across them, who question if God is a just God right? They look around at all the things going on and they go, how can a just God fill in the blank? And usually it applies directly to them. A just God. But in that, they kind of have also this warped sense of what true justice is because they wrongly believe that God being just looks down upon the whole of mankind, takes the total of mankind, and somehow will excuse or dismiss their evil and wicked ways because they're not as bad as most other people. You ever heard anybody kind of say that? At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And people like this often declare their own perceived deservedness of this kind of justice by saying things like, well, at least I've never killed anyone. On the other hand, there is this more extreme view of what a just God is like by others. And, and even this, this perversion of what justice is is even, even crept into the church today by those who wrongly believe that a good and loving God cannot be just. And therefore, God, who is good and loving, will overlook every sin and every evil and ultimately not judge anyone. Ever heard that? Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that neither of these points of view define true justice or are true about the person or the nature of God. Rather, these things are better defined closely, not perfectly, but they better define mercy or grace, which are things that no one deserves but something that everybody wants. So as Abraham is seen here working out his understanding of God with fear and trembling, because that's what he's doing, you hear him going before the Lord, Far be, it, far be it for me, Lord. I'm going to bring it up again. And he's really working out his own understanding of God in a fear and trembling way. We're called to do so also. And just as Abraham came to know God, guys, and to know that he was a good and just God who always does the right thing, God desires the same for us. He desires for us to know that only the righteous will be saved from the final judgment that is to come. And that no one also who is found to be righteous will be lost or left behind. However, we must understand that on our own merits, none of us can claim righteousness. For all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet God, who is merciful and full of grace, we know that He sent His only begotten Son to pay the debt that we owed. And as our sin was put on Him, all of His righteousness was made available to us by grace through faith. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for these words.